0: So bariatric surgery is safe, effective and obesity is misunderstood. Are you convinced? Let's see. Hello, hello, hello and welcome back to the Critical Care Practitioner podcast. I'm pouring them out thick and fast at the minute. That's mainly because I've been very busy over the last month or so. As you're probably aware, or you may or may not know, i just come back from a Smack conference in Berlin. I've just had a chat with Johnny Wilkinson to do the Two Johnnies Do Twitter podcast again, which was released a day or two ago. Actually, yesterday, I believe. Um, I should know, because I did it. Um, but I'm also releasing this one today because I was very privileged to be invited to the Home Mechanical Ventilation Conference by Rachel Moses, who had a chat with me a few podcasts ago. Um, and her and Professor Nick Hart, were running the conference from St Thomas's Hospital and asked me if I'd like to go along as almost a media presence and I said I would and I'd um, produce some videos for them and some podcasts and this is one of the podcasts. The reason I chose this one in particular is that it was one that caught my ear as a non-specialist in home mechanical ventilation and it was given by a surgeon regarding uh, bariatric surgery for obesity management. It was an interesting presentation It had some views at the beginning that you may or may not agree with. Uh, I think you have to hear his opinion. He seems to believe that obesity isn't always necessarily the fault of the person involved, and I can see his argument for that. So make your own mind up. Um, I think it's well worth listening to anyway, and I think it will involve us all one day, or certainly does involve us now in our critical care environment, that we are coming across more and more obese patients Um, and how we manage them is very often affected by uh, how they've been managed before. So I, I thought that's why I decided to play this one particularly as part of the Critical Care Practitioner podcast rather than just a specialist home mechanical ventilation one. So I hope you enjoy it. Go listen to it and we'll talk again at the end. So I've been asked to talk
1: about the role of bariatric surgery in obesity and I will do towards the end. We'll talk about the surgery towards the end of the talk. But I wanted to introduce the other major treatment of obesity which is the reason we have an obesity epidemic because it doesn't work which which is called dieting. I want to talk about what happens physiologically when people go on a diet and how that's helped us understand actually how bariatric surgery works. So this is the scale of the problem. Do we have a pointer? We have probably double the amount of overweight and obese people in the world compared to undernourished. We have a league table on the right-hand side here, men and women, adults, males and females. The UK is doing pretty well, so we're number 11 in the world and number 19 in the world, male and female. This study was about 10 years ago, so the obesity rates have increased slightly since this time. We have about a quarter of the adult population who are obese. In the U.K., sorry, in the U.S., it's about a third to 40 percent. If you look at the top on the female chart, this is 10 years ago, probably now in the Gulf, Qatar and Saudi Arabia, I think they probably have female adult obesity rates of over 50 percent. So this is now the norm. If you look towards the left again, the money spent on obesity-related diseases and the money spent on weight loss programs is phenomenal. There's a lot of different reports around about how much obesity costs in the UK. The McKinsey report from a few years ago suggested that the cost to the economy is about £47 billion per year. So, this is not just a a very, very severe health problem, but also quite a significant financial problem to uh, to the government. We're all very aware of the relationship between obesity and sleep apnea. Obesity causes sleep apnea, sleep apnea causes obesity. We know that probably around about 40% of the patients that we see coming in for consideration for bariatric surgery will have sleep apnea, most of them undiagnosed. We know that 70% of patients that you see who have sleep apnea are obese. Obesity causes sleep apnea via the fat deposition in the airway. This is sort of a simple surgical explanation for it. An airway collapse. We're becoming increasingly aware that sleep apnea itself causes an increase in ghrelin, which I'll come on to. This is a appetite-stimulating hormone. So it will increase energy intake. It also increases leptin resistance, which will reduce your metabolic rate. It will cause lethargy, somnolence, so decrease energy expenditure depression, agitation, anxiety which can lead to stress or binge eating. So obstructive sleep apnea can also lead to obesity. It's a common problem, Uh, we know the cause of it, chronically uh, taking in more energy than you uh, expend, but is everyone affected similarly? Uh, We know that it will only affect or majorly affect populations that adopt a sort of western type of eating and lifestyle culture. The main thing is the consumption of processed foods containing a lot of sugar and fat, so processed foods that have preservatives and elements in them to make them more hedonic and tasty. When these foods are introduced into a population, the population, a subset of the population will become obese. I will differ with John on one thing, I think that there is a genetic predisposition. We know that the FTO gene is quite a rare gene and that's something that we recognize as obesity related and that is present in one or two percent, so we do have a gene we can test for. However, if you look at uh, some epidemiological studies, this is from uh, Jane Wardle at UCL, she looked at about 300 pairs of identical twins. That had been separated at birth and adopted into different families. So the identical twins were brought up in different home environments. And she looked at what their body mass index was when they become adult, became adults. And she, as you probably would expect, even if they'd brought up in different home environments, maybe one is a healthy home environment, one has got poor eating and play habits, she found that there was actually a 77% genetic influence to body mass index index. And this is something that we see. We see when a patient walks in with obesity, and they bring their relatives, usually their relatives are, are pretty obese. It's quite rare to get a, uh, a genetic abnormality. I actually had a guy who walked into the clinic who was 300 kilograms. The guy was a mountain, he was sort of centrally obese. And I said to him, so can you give me a little bit of family history? Who's, who else is obese in your family? He said he was from a, a skinny family. I couldn't believe it. Then he mentioned that his father worked on Christmas Island during the co- atomic testing, so this guy had developed, via his father, a genetic mutation causing this massive obesity. But usually, it's just generally uh, uh, genetically um, programmed. She found that there was only about a 10% home environment influence, so blaming bad parenting, Uh, ignorance of uh, different types of uh, healthy foodstuffs, probably only had about a 10% influence. It wasn't the major influence of whether someone was going to suffer with obesity or not. Epigenetics is this new, fascinating area which looks at how the intrauterine environment can influence the expression of the genome in adult life. So it's not just that the genes are set by your mother and father, they can be switched on or off depending on in the case of obesity, perinatal undernutrition, or overnutrition. So both exposure to um, undernutrition or overnutrition can lead to genes favoring development of obesity and type 2 di- diabetes as adults. So this is almost like you're passing on not just the genes, but a little bit of environmental um, triggering of those genes as well which is probably why we see the current children coming through. The environment hasn't changed that much in the last 10, 20 years, but actually the obesity problem in, in uh, the childhood population seems to be getting even worse, and it may be due to epigenetic transmission or switching on of obesogenic genes. So, if you live in a Western environment, Western culture environment, If you have a family who's got obesogenic genes, if you maybe have got a mother who was obese when you were pregnant, then you're really almost preordained to struggle in our our current environment. Many of these people can identify a particular time in their life however when they actually started to gain weight, They they were okay for a while and then they started. So there are these sort of environmental triggers that many patients will tell you, and are documented as causing or starting weight gain. One of the main ones that I'll come on to is dieting. I'll give you the reason for this. Other things, pregnancy, we all know, is usually a start for many women, can't actually get the weight back down. Getting married, going to college, are actually triggers for gaining weight. Various drugs, including corticosteroids. Anxiety and emotional pain can cause a cortisol response and retention of, um, of energy and poor sleep, going back to sleep apnea. So these are all triggers that can cause that increase in weight trajectory. Okay, if we're going to talk about how diets work and how bariatric surgery works, we need a little bit of a refresher in just the control of energy regulation, the hormonal homeostasis of energy regulation. This is something that we're not really taught in medical school, Um, But we know that there are, if you look down on the right, over the short term, so over the hour-to-hour and day-to-day time frame, there are two main hormonal controllers of appetite and satiety. So, ghrelin is a hormone that is secreted by the fundus of the stomach in times of in-between meals. The higher the ghrelin level in the blood, the more it will act on the hypothalamus to cause a voracious appetite food-seeking behaviour and a preference for high-calorific-density foods. PYY is the appetite break, so this causes satiety. This is, this is produced by the proximal small bowel in response to contents, food contents within the proximal small bowel, so after eating, when food starts to get to the jejunum, you get a release of PYY and this goes again to the hypothalamus which causes a satiety and it's your signal to stop eating. So these two hormones really control exactly how much we're taking in the tires, calories and energy are concerned. It's not actually down to free will too much over the, over the longer period of time. If we look at the sort of medium or long-term regulator of uh, how much energy we're going to store, how fat or thin we're going to be, this is due to this um, hormone called leptin, which we've all heard of, this is produced in the white adipose tissue. So the more white adipose tissue you have, the more leptin you will have in your bloodstream. So if you're fat or suffering with obesity, you will have high rates of le- high levels of leptin. Leptin, when it's working, should be uh, able to decrease, should work on your hypothalamus to decrease your food intake and increase your basal metabolic rate. So you decrease the amount you take in you're increasing the amount that you're burning off. Again, leptin, if uh, we lose weight, leptin levels decrease and you get a decrease in uh, basal metabolic rate, so you don't burn as much energy off, but you get a voracious appetite. Unfortunately, once you reach a certain level of obesity, a threshold of obesity, various uh, inflammatory mediators produced by the fat pannus. Actually, are thought to act to prevent the action of leptin on the hypothalamus. So we've got patients with high leptin levels, high energy stores, high lots and lots of white adipose tissue, but the signal is not getting through to the hypothalamus. So this is when, when you see someone who's really, really morbidly obese, and they're maybe secretly eating uh, somewhere, Um, or you can actually occasionally see people in a buffet who are actually morbidly obese, but they're Voraciously eating, you're thinking, what is wrong, wrong with the signaling here? It's because they're getting the signals as if they're starving. They're getting no leptin coming through to the hypothalamus. So, leptin resistance really explains why, when you reach a certain threshold of obesity, it's really, really difficult to diet your way out of it. So, this is what happens. So, we have these poor patients who, probably by genetics and environment and epigenetics and triggers, start to really suffer with their weight and uh, um, nutritionists and dietitians and GPs will say okay you've got to start dieting, you've got to calorie restrict so that you lose weight. This is what happens to their appetite hormone, ghrelin. So you can see here, ghrelin uh, varies throughout the day, this is the time of day. So before lunch, before breakfast it's high, before lunch it's high and before evening meal it's high. This is in a group of patients before dieting and uh, 6 months after the diet had uh, started, they would lost 70% of their initial weight and the study re-measured their ghrelin level. And we can see it significantly increased throughout the day. You can actually see the mid-afternoon trough in ghrelin in the dieters, after the diet, corresponded to the pre-lunch peak of ghrelin before a diet started. So when people say that they are absolutely ravenous, starving and they find it difficult to walk past a costa when they are on a diet, it's because of this massively raised uh, levels of ghrelin. It's not due to being weak willed. Of even more concern is the really longer term uh, effect on appetite and satiety that diets have. So anyone who has been on a low calorie diet may sympathise with this. Um, this was a study that looked at baseline levels of ghrelin, the appetite hormone, and PYY, the satiety hormone, at baseline and after a low calorie diet for 10 weeks. They then looked at the level a year after they would finished the diet. If you look at the ghrelin level, after the diet started. Um, ghrelin level was significantly elevated, meaning that they were more hungry. Ghrelin level stayed elevated a year after the diet had finished. If you look at PYY, the satiety hormone, you will see that it's depressed after the diet, but then it's also even more depressed a year after the diet is finished. So people have the consequences of low-calorie dieting over a long, long period of time after the diet is finished. But there is no real difference, as far as the body is concerned, with a low-calorie diet that you go on by a choice and a uh, famine due to an environmental change. And this is the effect. These really aren't really published very often. These because the diet companies and uh, there's a lot of self-interest in in diets, but there's a load of research to say they don't work. We know they work a little bit. We know that everyone can lose. 10 kilograms if you starve yourself and you have enough motivation, but actually when the diet finishes, patients tend to gain weight and usually by a year, the weight's gone on, usually a little bit after that, they actually regain even more weight and they end up heavier than when they started the diet. So we know with robust research that non-surgical weight loss therapy has not been shown to result in long term weight loss. This is really um, eloquently explained, when you know the physiology, it really eloquently explains what your patients are telling you week in, week out, week in, week out, and before you just didn't really understand it. So the typical story that the bariatric surgeon will hear is of someone who started dieting when they were young, maybe they were size 12 or 14, usually female, and they wanted to be a size 8 because they thought it would make them happy, so they went on the... uh, whatever trendy low calorie diet was around at the time and they started dieting and they lost weight as we see, you can lose some weight with diets, 5, 10, 15 kilograms because you're calorie restricting, but then the body catches up and adapts to the new environment, so she would then experience a a real drop off by probably about 50% of her leptin levels, leading to a profound decrease in her basal metabolic rate. In fact, the basal metabolic rate catches up with the amount of energy she's taking in. So she may be on a 1500 or 1800 kilocalorie diet but actually her body is adapted to it. So no longer is she losing weight despite sticking to the diet. In addition, she's got an increased appetite because of the increased ghrelin level and decreased satiety. So she's tired, she's miserable, she's very, very hungry and she doesn't feel full very often and her diet's not working anymore. So, she comes off the diet and the weight goes back on, but even faster, because the, body, because the basal metabolic rate is low. Patients will regain the weight and they will all say, I regain it but I put even more on, and this is because the body is now scared that you are in an environment where there is famines around the corner. So it wants a little bit more insurance, it wants to guard against future famine. This goes on for years and years and decades and decades, yo-yo fluctuations in diet until the final set point is reached where the patient has developed leptin resistance and the whole homeostatic regulation of body weight which a lot of us have naturally, has gone and you have the disease obesity which a lot of doctors don't understand. This is a really interesting study that highlights the the real extreme differences in basal metabolic rate amongst matched groups. So this is a study that looked at people who should have the same basal metabolic rate. We put a complicated equation uh, into an app and we can come out with what our basal metabolic rate is. If you look at matched controls so the same age, sex and fat-free mass and you compare the upper 5% to the lower 5% basal metabolic rate, you're going to get a difference of over 700 kilocalories per day. This is the equivalent to a 10K run. So, a lot of patients will say to me, hang on, I used to live in a house where someone was the same size as me, but they were able to eat McDonald's two, three, four times a week, and I had to go on salads, but I was the one putting weight on. This explains these factors, and this is, again, not really out there. So, since dealing with obese people and learning bariatric surgery, which is great fun, and listening to them and then going to the books and doing a bit of research, I realized that what they were telling me all this time, diets don't work, that they think their metabolism is low, that they think it's a little bit genetic, is true. And I find that it's a really sad illness actually, I find that um, obviously it gives them a poor quality of life, um, quite often they're diabetic, hypertensive, they've got sleep apnea, 50% are on antidepressants, they've got a short life expectancy of 7 to 10 years, everyone blames them because no one really understands obesity, so there is societal prejudice and they blame themselves because they can see they can lose a bit of weight on the diet but it always goes back on, so they think they're weak-willed. So this brings us to the current solution, I mean, the solution is actually to go back a hundred years, get back towards a male paleolithic diet where people consume a lot less carbohydrates, have any sugar, a load of vegetables, meat, fish, etc. But that's not really out there, that's not going to happen, the food industry is too powerful. So, in the interim, until governments start thinking about that, we have bariatric surgery. One of the things that I wanted you to take out of the talk today was this. John was talking about extreme obesity. Actually, most patients that come to us are carrying out their day to day lives, but they're struggling. They're being my 40 to sort of 55. They're fully active and they're trying to get on with things, but so they're not on the extreme. So these are most patients. So if they come to a unit where they have a great team of um, multidisciplinary professionals, they're optimized, they're selected properly, surgery itself is about as risky as gallbladder surgery. So a lab coli is the same as a lab gastric bypass, as far as risk is concerned. Popularity of procedures is always changing, it's a little bit confusing. Uh, this is the time, the date, in years. This is the number of procedures in the US, so we're over two, 270K procedures per year. And this is the type of procedure the different colors. So the current trend is for increasingly patients want this procedure called the sleeve gastrectomy. The previous one you'll have heard of was about 10 years ago, the gastric band was in, in, in fashion. It's now going out of fashion, for a reason I won't go into, uh, and the gastric bypass has always been pretty good, robust, we've got good long-term results for it. So, at the moment, the sleeve and the gastric bypass are really uh, quite common. This is an animation of what we do with the sleep hysterectomy. So, it's keyhole or laparoscopic surgeon, John will agree that it takes between half an hour and an hour. Um, patients can go home the next day. Usually it's two days, but they can go home the next day. They'll take about a week or ten days off work if they're, if they're sort of active. The stomach takes about two litre capacity. It's about as big as a melon. So before surgery, it can take a, a, a big volume of food. The operation is very, very simple. We just staple along the stomach and change the shape from a melon shape to the shape of a tube or a sleeve. So the tube is a couple of centimetres wide and ten centimetres long. It's like a, a peeled banana after it's been a banana it just been peeled. Just go back actually. So the capacity is decreased from 2 liters to about 150 to 200 cc and this part of the stomach, you will remember, is the area that secretes ghrelin, the appetite secreting hormone. Normally if a person loses weight, they will get a very high ghrelin level and really want to go and eat. With the sleep restrictomy, they lose weight because the capacity of the stomach is decreased but they don't get that rebound hunger because the stomach is removed. The other common procedure, gastric bypass works in three main ways. So there is a restrictive element, so the stomach is separated, nothing is removed, the upper part of the stomach becomes about the size and the shape of an egg. We bring up a loop of the upper small bowel and attach or anastomose it to the stomach pouch and then we rejoin biliary secretions halfway down the small bowel. So it works really by a restrictive element so patients can't eat very, very, very fast as they're eating the stomach pouch will empty but they will get quite an early satiety if they eat too fast particularly. The main way it probably works is by this hormonal route so if you can imagine undigested food going pretty much straight into the middle or or the upper jejunum if you remember the uh, satiety hormone PYY predominates in the upper jejunum, when it uh, senses undigested food, not not mixed with bile, it will have a profound increase in PYY level which will go to the hypothalamus and within five minutes of eating you're going to start to get those satiety signals. So the sort of bypass is tricking the GI tract into into sending signals to the brain that you've eaten a large amount of food when you actually haven't. Traditionally, we thought the bypass worked mainly by malabsorption, but we now know that's actually a small part of it. Uh, and usually, the malabsorptive element uh, sort of readapts after about one year. So, it's mainly restrictive, but mainly hormonal. It's changing the signals that the brain, the satiety and appetite centre receives. So, it makes it just really easy to actually not think about food too much. If we look at uh, studies on ghrelin level, the appetite st- stimulator, we look at the ghrelin level as you saw before before surgery, and you look at the level after surgery, it's profoundly decreased. This is after gastric bypass. If we look at PYY, and another hormone called GLP-1, which not only causes satiety, but also uh, improves peripheral insulin resistance, which is why gastric bypass improves diabetes, and sometimes sends diabetics into remission before they even go home from hospital. We look at these two hormones, satiety hormones, they significantly increased even 20 years after a type of gastric bypass. We know subjectively, patients tell us that they don't feel hungry, they feel increased satiety. Actually, their tastes change. They don't really want to eat sugar anymore, they actually crave salads and healthier foods. As far as a long term outcome, as far as weight loss is concerned, um, We've got got good data for 25 years now on gastric bypass, it looks like most patients retain a 65-70% excess weight loss over a longer period of time. I found this study which compared dieting and bariatric surgery, Uh, this is the time interval, this is in diabetics, two different types of uh, bariatric surgery and medical treatment. As you can see, with the diet, as we saw, you can lose 10 kilograms but you're just going to put it back on. I'm surprised the weight trajectory didn't carry on up here. With the type of bariatric surgery, uh, two different types of gastric bypass, the weight came off and uh, weight loss was maintained over a long period of time. So there was a significant difference between the effectiveness of diets and bariatric surgery. As far as your patient group is concerned, uh, bariatric surgery will almost always cure sleep apnea. Uh, 94% of patients won't need CPAP anymore. As mentioned before, type 2 diabetes is almost always improved. Uh, these are the nice guidelines if you're thinking of referring people to a, a bariatric surgeon, if they come not via bariatrics but just off the street or a referral. Uh, actually, the age group, age range we can do at adolescents these days. Uh, I think of a BMI of over 40 with no comorbidities or 35 with comorbidities such as sleep apnea. Well, the new guidelines are, if you've got a BMI of over 30 and type 2 diabetes, diabetes, you're now eligible to be considered for bariatric surgery. So bariatric surgery is really successful, quite safe. Obesity is very misunderstood. Uh, We welcome any questions.
0: Hmm. Hope you found that interesting. I certainly did. It was one of the highlights of the conference for me. Um, Like I say, as a non-specialist in home mechanical ventilation, it was a very, very, very good conference. So thank you, Rachel and Prof Hart, for inviting me there. And I'm hoping I might be able to go back next year. I've got some quite exciting plans for conferences in the future. I've been invited to the International Fluid Academy Conference in Antwerp, and I'm also at the Intensive Care Society Conference in uh, uh, Liverpool at the end of this year and I was doing the live streaming at the Smack conference and I think this is something that could work very very well for both of those conferences so I'm hoping I'll be able to do some more of that so if you do follow me on Critical Care Practitioner on Facebook or on Periscope via Twitter or on the YouTube channel yes I do have a YouTube channel um, then you may well see the odd live Facebook uh, sorry the odd live uh, video so Catch it, have a look at it. Let me know what you think. I think it's the way of the future. It's much easier to do now than it ever was. I did it with minimal equipment. I had a laptop. I had two free pieces of software and I had a couple of USB cameras and a microphone. So it didn't cost me very much uh, and I think it could prove very valuable in the future. That's all I'm going to say for now. Like I say, I hope you found that useful. There were some more talks from the Home Mechanical Ventilation Conference, which I'm releasing as YouTube videos with the slides as well. That's taken me a little while to edit, uh, but I am getting there. So take care, and I'll see you soon. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Critical Care Practitioner. If you would like to comment on any of today's topics, find us at criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk, tweet us at ccpractitioner, Find us at facebook.com slash practitioner or search Critical Care Practitioner on iTunes.